Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Rice University, located in Houston, Texas, is a relatively young university by conventional standards. Yet its business school is even younger. The Jones Graduate School of Business was established in 1974, making it one of the youngest major business schools in the United States. Over time, the school built its reputation by serving its various MBA and executive programs. In recent years, it expanded into offering doctoral programs. Peter Rodriguez, our guest today, is now shifting this picture even further. After 13 years at the University of Virginia in various leadership capacities, Peter joined Rice as Dean in 2016. As he was preparing to start that role, he saw an opportunity to expand the school into undergraduate education, something for which Rice as a campus takes tremendous pride in. For a variety of reasons, such a move is more challenging than one might think. In this podcast, we learn how and why Peter took on this strategic challenge and how he conquered the various roadblocks he faced. Peter Rodriguez, it's uh, great to have you on Dean's Council. It's great to be here. Fantastic. Thank you for inviting me. Well, Jim and I are really looking forward to our session today. You and the uh, the Jones School of Business at, at Rice are, are taking up what has historically been a non-traditional challenge for for decades, you have been a, a graduate program focusing on the MBA, branching out into other variations of MBA degree programs, albeit very successfully. But you're taking on a new challenge in the undergraduate space. Can you kind of share the what, the why, the how? And and that that's a pretty complex political dynamic to take on as well. How's, how's it all happening? How's it working out? Well, no, th- thanks for asking, David. It has been one of the biggest changes I've been a part of. And, and if you ask me to reflect on one of the most important, it probably is the one most important change, getting an undergraduate business degree offered for the first time in the history of Rice University. Um, so, so the what is just that. We launched an online degree in business with two concentrations, one in finance, one in management. We did this uh, two years ago, so we're just getting started. Still haven't had a graduate yet, but we're, we're getting there. It's very popular. Um, part of the reason we wanted to do this is that uh, we have some fantastic undergraduate students here and demand was, was already high. We heard from these students for years. They were taking courses in other fields. Uh, other parts of the university were offering what you might call business degree substitutes. You know, that's what I would call them. They were makeshift degrees. And the opportunity was great. You know, on the employer side too, we had lots of employers in town who employed our MBAs and our MAC grads. And they said, we'd love to get some more of your undergrads and be great if they came in with more training in finance, let's say, or or operations or something like that. So so that was an easy one uh, for on our end. It made a ton of great sense. It's also just a booming area of demand. You know, business degree demand at the undergraduate level has been super high. Schools in our state, like University of Texas, Macombs or SMU, A&M, they've done great uh, with these students. And we haven't been 
in that market yet. So it was a huge opportunity for us. Lots of our peers are involved, just made all the sense in the world for us. And so the why was, was pretty easy. Um, getting it done, that's a different story. <laughs> right, you know? right. Take us through that, uh, take us through that journey. Yeah, so I remember coming here in 16, uh, the fall of 16, and, and I, I had this conversation right away with the president, you know, what would you like to do, Peter? Well, here are some things it would be great to offer undergrads. And, and he and the provost both said, I understand your reasoning and that makes good sense. And, and if I were in your shoes, I'd want that too. But you probably don't want to do that. <laughs> uh, or you, you might want to think about your timing because it's going to cannibalize other degrees at the university. You're going to draw away. And when you bring that up, uh, I think these other schools are, are going to oppose you or, or wonder why they should say that's okay. And, and you always face the deficit that business schools face, which is, you know, I don't know how intellectually valuable it is for you to have a growing uh, undergraduate business. And, and we're a school that looks a little bit more like, you know, these schools in the Northeast that, that don't have that, or, or there are a lot of great schools that don't have this at all. And so why, why us? And why would we give you the opportunity <laughs> to launch that if it's going to cost us graduates and semester credit hours and, and in the future, possibly teaching lines. So it was uphill from the beginning. Did you market your thoughts to other deans as you were going through the process? Did you kind of do it as, you know, go up to the president, provost and say, okay, you guys have to help me on this. You know, how did you kind of go through it to get, to get people to really buy into what you were trying to do? Yeah. So we did, we did, we did, I did market it a little bit. I had some, some deans and we have a good group of deans around rice and, and, I, I sort of started with what I would call some friendlies. I said, well, this person will understand what I'm up to. And, and I sort of posed it as a hypothetical, you know, what if I, what if I tried to launch this degree? How would you feel about it? And so, you know, in certain schools, engineering or natural sciences, they would say, that's great. Sure. You know, that'd be useful. And there might be a lot of students who'd want a double major and maybe down the road, we could have joint degrees. That would make sense. But in other fields like social sciences, it has econ and psychology or uh, humanities. I think the question was, you know, aren't we doing enough? Why would we do that? And, and then down the line, even, you know, they, they wouldn't voice that so overtly, but it was, well, that's going to cost me, you know, and, and we don't even have RCM. So it wasn't as if there's a direct one for one immediate loss, but over time, of course, the rationale for faculty lines is in large part driven by demand. So, um, I tested it out and the, and the president and the provost both said, well, if the university were to expand, that would make it easier on you. You know, if overall enrollment goes up, you can therefore, you know, take a slice of that overall enrollment. It's not necessarily going to be a direct loss. And that's essentially what we did is we waited for that timing for the university to say, we're going to grow a little bit, a couple hundred students per year, and you can get your vote then. And so um, that's what we did. We waited. <laughs> and when the university said, we're going to grow a little bit, we, we proposed our degree and just started walking it through little by little uh, the way you normally do. You started um, with a business minor before you brought on the major. Was that a part of a master grant strategy or, or did it just unfold in 
in independent ways. I think it was a good option everyone understood would be uh, a great test case. And we had the largest miner on campus and it was capped essentially. We had a, a revenue cap essentially. So it wasn't that oh. you couldn't teach more, you just couldn't get any money for teaching more. But it was hugely popular and a lot of students combined it with all the other degrees they have. What we were ultimately able to convince others of was this is a high quality degree. Students enjoy it. It actually has a great deal of applicability. These are highly employable students. Um, and, and we could do more if, if we had a, a major, we could get even better students. And, and the easy thing to do was to point around the country and around the state to other really high quality institutions with great business uh, degrees for the undergrads. And, and part of it was just educating others. I think for a lot of a lot of my colleagues around the campus, they, they don't know what business schools do for the most part, or who does it. And so it was just part of that, uh, that process. And, and, you know, they were willing to listen. It, it wasn't the easiest message, but over time we, we won out. Are you going to keep the minor or, uh, or, or truncate it? We're going to keep the minor. Um, it's still really popular. Some majors like, you know, the engineers, their, their majors are so crowded with required hours that they're not going to be able to double major with any sort of ease. They'd have to be a, a glutton for punishment or to come in with a crazy number of AP hours. That's so true. I, I had that same experience. Yeah, that, that, that is just nothing that you can, you can overcome. And we, we can't really talk them out of that. And increasingly, you know, the engineers want a little bit of business acumen, entrepreneurship, very exciting for a lot of them, particularly computer science majors. But others, you know, especially combined with human humanities or uh, social sciences, biological sciences, it's a great combo. So we're keeping that, and so our undergraduate demand is really booming, and that's going to change the the nature of the school over time. But I think in a good way. It's it's an adjustment. We're not used to that. We're not used to nineteen year olds just yet. But uh, they're they're fantastic, and we're enjoying it. You know, it's interesting that uh, that that you've done this and done it so well, and. Uh... One of the things that, as you mentioned, you know, the, the engineering students, for example, have such a required curriculum that it really is difficult for them to do it other than stay a couple more years. That's pretty tough. But um, I think what it also does for your humanities people is the employability of these, these students as they go on. They can still go on into their careers in the humanities, but now they have a sense of, how the business aspect might come into play in something that they're doing. And so you're giving them just more arrows in their quiver from a skill set standpoint that they have to sell to an employer, not in a business environment, but in a humanities environment. Yeah, no, we found that to be absolutely true. And um, everybody likes to have students who can read well, think well, understand human beings, and the major uh, certainly still allows room for that, but the minor especially, you know, you, in, in 18 credit hours, which isn't all that much, you can get a long way towards understanding financial statements. Being conversant in business concepts is, is really valuable. And just having some skills you just don't get anywhere else, some knowledge you don't get anywhere else. I think that that differentiation in a business school is often underappreciated at universities. One of the discussions I had some years ago was with the chancellor at UCLA and they do not have an undergraduate business 
degree. And we were talking, and then I said, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate the fact you don't have an undergraduate business degree because I don't have to compete with you. And I said, why don't you do that? And he said, Jim, I can't afford it. And I mean, I, I think what it was, what he meant is he couldn't afford the downstroke. How much is it going to cost me upfront from an investment perspective relative to advising and career placement and some of those things? What have you found that to be like in terms of the cost upfront before you admitted one student? Yeah, you know, we didn't face a, a tremendous amount of incremental cost. Latent demand was really high, so students can come over. It, unlike other parts of the university, we, we have a fairly high student to faculty ratio. And so for, you know, uh, a third of a tenured professor's, um, you know, contract or, or less of a, of a great NTT or somebody else who's teaching, we can really get a lot of teaching done. The employability is really high. We're, we're fortunate to be in a very large city with, with lots of local demand and in a state with lots of demand. And so, you know, they're flying off the shelves, so to speak. You know, we haven't had to work that hard for that part. We still don't deliver the career services to them we do to our MBAs. That's part of an agreement with the university. We'll see how that goes. I, I, it's definitely true that the same employers want to meet students at different levels on the same day or to have a coordinated effort. And so ultimately it may make more sense for us to do more of that. Um, but it hasn't been, it hasn't been too bad. And I would say, you know, um, we've been able to manage it so far. We're, we're going to run out of space if we don't work on that, which of course I'm working on, but uh, otherwise it's, it hasn't been too bad to get going. And the faculty, you know, we're large enough. We definitely have faculty who enjoy that group too. It wasn't as if we had to do too much arm twisting to get them to go with another, uh, another type of student. Some, some prefer one over the other, but it hasn't been too bad. Is the, is the career services aspect at Rice a centralized function or is it one that's done within each individual college? It's a centralized function for all but our graduate students. So all of our MBAs have a, we have our, our career center here. And it, it's great. I, I, I do think that's something you see across all levels of student is greater demand for preparation and support in career services. You know, I would say you can almost never overinvest in your career center because uh, they want it. And, um, it, you know, in times like these, when jobs are, you know, more plentiful than typical, uh, it's, it's fine. But of course, we all know uh, when the economy swings a little bit uh, downward, uh, everybody stresses out. And, and even now, you know, they, they, they have to work really hard. So um, we'll have to invest more in that over time. You know, for, for what it's worth, we also have an online degree program and those students want career services. You know, it doesn't matter who you are at the university. You, you want a little help getting a job or getting a better job. It's interesting when you talk about the online students because we always felt that many of those students either were A, already employed or were geographically in such a place that we couldn't do anything for them from a career services standpoint. And yet we went through the same experience where we found they want some career help too and some guidance and some advising and counseling. So um, it really, and, and they are a tuition paying student of equal standing to the university. So they deserve it. And um, we didn't think about it that way, but um, I'm glad you guys have reflected that. 
provided for them. Peter, uh, a few minutes ago, you mentioned that uh, you're addressing a new uh, student clientele in terms of age demographics. And uh, I wanted to kind of revisit that a little bit. Yeah, again, for since the inception of your college, you've been targeting a uh, person in their late 20s and then more recently in their 30s and 40s and what have you. But now you're going after a teenager. Um, what kind of cultural, you know, attitudinal shifts are you anticipating or planning for in terms of staff and faculty approach to to this uh to this new student body well you know we, we we sort of jumped in with with both feet and we knew that this was going to be new for us and we we're, were already experiencing some of the the changes and so i'll talk through a couple that we've learned just in hearing from the faculty who are teaching our undergraduates so you know, for a lot of them, it, it's a different uh, feel. Uh, you know, in the, in the graduate space, students become more accustomed to a case study methodology or a highly interactive, you know, set of discussions. That's not automatic for the undergrads. That takes a little more work. They're, they're a little more uh, passive, at least at the beginning. And I don't think they feel quite as comfortable in that, in that culture. It's not like most of their other courses around the campus. They don't have work experience, so they're they're listening, and 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 some of those professors are a little bit more sage on the stage, you know, when they present to them. The other one is, you know, their their background in business is is usually really thin, so it's not as if they've been reading the Wall Street Journal or understand the history of this company or that. Uh, they know a little bit, uh, but they're just getting involved and, and you know, they have lots of questions. You know, what, well, what is venture capital versus private equity versus this versus that? And so that's been different. Um, and and you know, for our faculty, that's uh, not, not customary for them. They're used to dealing with students who are a bit more mature, have some work experience, have probably hired and fired someone, or have at least worked on a team that worked well and one that didn't. And when you're 18, 19, that's just you know, brand new. So we're getting there, but a lot of our faculty are hesitant to go into those classrooms just yet because they know that's that's new and that's that's different. And so that takes work. And and then there are other things. You know, we just have lots of events for for grad students here, and lots of, our norms are there. And so even little things like, you know, we don't think anything about having you know uh, beer and wine at a reception, but now you got to think, oh right. <laughs> You know, we can't just uh, allow walk-ups. You have to watch right. that really closely. <laughs> That's and right. So um, it's just thinking that through and getting ready. And uh, it's come quick. You know, the knowledge has come quickly, but not always easily. <laughs> is 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 the is the undergraduate business student invited to the MBA events? I.e., a CEO comes to campus to speak. Um, maybe there's a panel on private equity versus venture capital as you say you know do they have access to the mba the the mba uh programs the, the number one question second question is are you bringing these these business students in in their freshman year is it a four-year business degree that they're, they're over four years or are they coming in and humanities and transferring requesting transfers however so two questions for you there Sure. So they're invited to most of those events. Um, there are some MBA um, club events, 
uh, where they'll have limited access. So we might have a, a finance summit, let's say, that's put on by the MBA students and and they'll reserve most of the seats for themselves and they'll have some for other students and, and the undergrads are there. If it's a general school event, and so we have a we have a couple of those. We had one last week, we have one um, week after next, and it's everybody in the, in, the, in the school come. There's no difference between MBAs and undergrads. Um, in terms of the major, you know, here uh, you can declare, you must declare by the end of your sophomore year, uh, but they're not admitted to a school. They indicate their preference of a major. There's no gating mechanism. And so uh, we don't have a difference in uh, GPA. We don't have a difference in tuition. And you can transfer anytime you can tra and you've met the requirements. But Rice, across all degrees, you have that, which means it's difficult to predict demand. And so um, we, we don't have a way to manage that. It, it could go really high. I'm always told, you know, when the uh, when organic chemistry hits a lot of the, the pre-meds and, and differential equations hits a lot of the, the engineers, we're, we're going to see some some inflow and, and we have so far and, and I expect that to continue. We sort of just wait and see. Thus far, we don't have anything like that. Peter, what, what advice do you have for new deans when uh, many deans are not going to face starting an undergrad program? Many of them already have it. But but when you think about these great strategic challenges, what a, what a generic advice do you have to, to deans on how to how do you approach a, a monster strategic challenge like you've just done? Well, you know, I think the start is um, to get as clear as you can in your own thinking and then start to talk to other people about it, especially, you know, the, the, the key faculty stakeholders you have and the provost and others. And I think you tell them in confidence, here's what I'm thinking and here's why and, and get the why really right. <laughs> people want to know and they want to know that you've thought about it. Uh, really carefully. And and so I, I made my case early and I made it to small groups and then a few more groups. And before long, we had more people interested. Um, I guess the advice, therefore, is is not to surprise anyone and to walk it up so that by the time you really branch out and, and open it up to everyone, you've you've got a little more advice and you've refined your idea. And then you need to be really candid and honest with people. I, I told them, I'm really certain about this decision to do this. I'm not certain what the outcome will be, but I'm certain that this is the right decision. And here's how we're gonna manage the outcome. And here's what this is gonna do for us and why that's important. And, you know, uh, just made my case as, as strongly as possible. And, and as usual, you know, you, you'll find allies and you'll find uh, others. <laughs> uh, but I definitely found enough allies uh, to get going and, and, and to push. And, you try not to sneak up on anybody or or deal with it. You have to think about the the standard set of questions in any change, which is what's in it for me. And everybody's going to ask that question in one form or another. So be ready for that. And then, you know, my my favorite saying, I think it, probably more to myself than other ones, is that, you know, the army of the status quo never runs out of soldiers. You've probably heard that one before, but you know, <laughs> you, you will have to continue to make the case over and over and push a little bit harder. You don't want to twist arms or or use too much force, but you, you can't afford to get tired of it. And it's not done when the decision is made. So that's normal. Interesting. Peter, you, you came from an academic family growing up. <laughs> Did that shape your 
perspective did you did you come to the job with maybe a, a different strategic perspective you think oh you know my so my dad was a chemistry professor organic chemist and so he, uh, uh, a traditional scientist and uh, so he was highly analytical person and uh, and and I like that and I like the pace of academia and I kind of got that I think what what I probably knew without knowing that I knew it was that you know it's not like being a CEO you know you 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 do have to walk decisions through a little bit more and there's an awful lot of persuasion that that's also like a CEO but you don't quite have the same sticks and carrots that you have in, in other organizations and so I I got that part and and I got that you needed to bring people along and to be compelling without being um, forceful or without being too forceful and you have to make those choices sometimes it's hard but but that I think I got and then you know once you're in I think I liked the idea of being an academic being able to spend a lot of time with ideas and with students is is fun you know that part of the job is amazing well it sounds like it helped shape shaped your leadership style do you have a target in terms of, you know, how many how many students you want in the business major, or where it might shake out as a percent of total student population at Rice that you're shooting at? Yes. Well, we have some guesses around that. So when we looked at peer schools, the, the range is wide. Um, at a large public university, it, it's going to be it could be really high. Fifteen to twenty percent of the student body could be in the business school, even more in some cases. I felt confident that we were going to be 10 plus percent of the student body here and in majors. And so far, that's probably right or a little bit under what we're seeing. Uh, the university, I think, has been comfortable admitting around 9 to 10 percent or admitting students that they imagine uh, will be business majors at about that level. Um, but I think it might end up being a little bit higher than that. And that's fine. That's about what we can manage. And and that's about all we're going to get paid for anyway. So <laughs> you have to be careful on that one too. Yeah, it's interesting. When you don't have revenue-centered management, it's a whole different way of getting paid. And you're not being paid for the yeah. butts in seats, but you're literally being paid on a different, different formulaic basis. And so it causes you to think a little bit more about how many students you actually take. And then it also impacts the faculty lines and the recruiting that goes on. 100%. You know, and, and, and our faculty know all that too dollar for dollar, we do better with graduate students than undergraduates. And so you have to think that through carefully. Now, the undergraduates are valuable for other reasons, including just it's a joy to teach them and they're central to the university. So in a big part, culturally, I really wanted the school to be more uh, centered with the university. And I'm happy about that, even if even if the costs are, cost differentials are different and things, things to consider, they don't dissuade me. Well, Peter, what a uh, what a helpful conversation this has been. Thank you for your advice and uh, and sharing your wisdom on this. Good luck on this venture. No, thank you. I appreciate it, Dave, and thank you, Jim. I appreciate all the advice. I, I love what you're doing, and I hope that uh, uh, I get to come back sometime. And I look forward to listening. Look forward look forward to seeing you again, Peter. It's just been great today. Thank you so much for doing this. It's it's really good to see you, and I'm glad you're thriving. It's terrific. Thanks so much. My pleasure. I hope to see you all too. So, Jim, it was great having uh, Peter on board today. What did you think? 
I thought Peter really did a very masterful job in thinking through the strategy of bringing on a new program like that. Um, it's a big undertaking, particularly when he's, he's really looking at upwards and maybe even higher 10% of the total student population. That's a, that's a big number at, at Rice or at any school. Um, but I think what he's done is he's captured a student body who is interested in maybe starting their careers earlier than some students do that are going on for MBAs. Many, many students come out of the undergraduate programs and want to start up a business. And it's great. I think it's terrific. But if they don't have the acumen to do that, um, it's not going to work out so well. Plus the fact that a, a business graduate can partner up with an engineering graduate, let's say, to do a startup. And um, all of a sudden, you've got the creative side and the business side of that particular business. So it, they really are bringing the students to a place that they will benefit themselves and benefit others with their, with their skill set. Um, I think it's really, really smart of Rice to do this. And, and Peter is the perfect guy because he, he's just so steady in the way he's handled it. I, I was really impressed with what he had to say. Right. I was too. And I, I really liked uh, that they're keeping the, the business minor. Um, it's a totally different market. And I think the, uh, I think it reduces the uh, financial threat, if you will, to the humanities, uh, because it's actually going to support the humanities as opposed to leaving the impression that the major is all about transferring credit hours over to Rice. He reinforced this idea that even though they're not on an RCM system, at the end of the day, you know, big swings in enrollment will affect others, but. Um, by keeping that minor in place, I thought that was a clever strategy because it it's at least one tool to say, hey, you know, those music majors are going to still stay over in that in that music college. We're going to, you know, have them more employable um, after the after the fact. So, and they're gonna they're gonna need to to think about the expansion of career services for undergrads. But, but he's aware of that, and um, he's going into every one of these decisions with his eyes wide open, and that's what I would suggest to any new deans is keep your eyes open to what all the pitfalls can be, anticipate them, have your solutions ready for them when that hits, because it will. I found his personality and his style really intriguing. You know, He made a comment there at the end of, of – uh, uh, I know I'm making the right decision. I'm just not quite sure how it's going to turn out. What what a what a great approach to um, being able to take that risk um, and and know that it's the right thing to do. But at the end of the day, it probably will work out. And he's got he's got a really highly intellectual student body, so that's that's going to be just terrific and. Uh, yeah, um, what a blessing that is. It is a blessing. So, yes, that was a great, great session. Great. Learned a lot. Well, Jim, great to see you again. Thanks, Dave. See you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, 
Please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.